You're listening to Of Saints and Sorrow, a podcast exploring faithfulness to Christ at this turbulent, revealing, and divisive moment in history. Hi everyone, and welcome back to Of Saints and Sorrow. It has been a really, really long time since my last episode, which I know, but... It's 2020, life has gotten in the way, and better late than never, right? So, today, this episode is all about abortion. Uh, as As I've titled it, The Great Political Pinata. So the first thing I want to say is that I know a lot of people who are who would uh, describe themselves as pro-life. They do so in good faith, and they do so with all sincerity as they do so. And this episode, this episode isn't about convincing anyone to ditch that ideal, to ditch that ethic. It's not about getting someone to suddenly call themselves pro-choice. To be pro-life, in my opinion, is a good thing. If anything, I would actually like pro-life to be extended to the poor, the destitute, and our enemies, to name but a few people, but that's actually a different podcast episode for a different day. The reason I'm making this podcast episode is because of a deeply seated and long-standing fear I have that my good faith friends and brothers and sisters are actually being taken advantage of by Essentially, well, it is political operatives who don't really care about the issue of abortion. And they know that by making overt appeals to pro-life sentiments that they can enjoy loyalty to their political party, specifically from white evangelicals. For example, how many of you who are listening would describe yourselves as single-issue voters, or how many of you listening have friends who would describe themselves as single-issue voters? To be a single-issue voter is to essentially say a candidate or a party can adopt a platform that says anything on the one hand, but if on the other hand they describe themselves as pro-life, then they will get my support. And the question that arises from this is how did we get to this place? How did we get to a place in our political imagination that says, I will stand with you, I will give you my vote, I will give you license to vote on any number of issues, a large range of issues, however you see fit, so long as with this, so long as when it comes to this particular issue, you describe yourself in a way that I agree with. How did we get here? Is it that American evangelicals mobilized against abortion the second the Supreme Court made their judgment in Roe v. Wade back in 1973? Uh, unfortunately, that's not, that's not the case. What actually happened is that until the late 70s and 80s, evangelicals en masse were actually mostly indifferent to abortion. It's not to say that there weren't some who... Uh, who, who does not say there weren't some who spoke, who didn't speak against it. There were some who spoke against it, but on mass there was a large indifference and even actually some uh, some agreement to the with the idea of abortion. 
there are there are quite a few factors for this, but one of them is actually the idea that abortion was at that time considered a Catholic issue. This was a time in our history when there was a lot of mistrust between Protestants and Catholics. There was a fear on behalf of the Protestants that Catholics were trying to take over. So whenever Catholics were for something, Protestants were against it. And for the for the listener who wants to hear, there is actually this is actually a thread that kind of runs through this story. It's about power when it comes down to it. It is about who has power who doesn't have it, who wants it, who's going to have access to it, and who should have power. But yeah, as I was saying, this indifference boils down to, at its bare bones, the idea that abortion was a Catholic issue, and Protestants, therefore, were disinterested. In 1968, five years before Roe v. Wade was decided, Christianity Today and the Christian Medical Society met to discuss the morality of abortion. And after, the, after this conference, they, they issued a statement saying that they didn't know how to decide if abortion was immoral or not. And they then, but they wanted to leave the option of abortion open. So they were like, we can't figure out if this is immoral, which to many of the listeners is is a viewpoint that sounds so at odds with what we're used to hearing from Christian leaders. And then in that same statement, they said, well, let's, let's leave the option open for people to get abortions should they need them. In 1971, two years before Roe v. Wade, the Southern Baptist Convention passed a resolution calling for the legalization of abortion. And they reaffirmed this resolution in 1974, one year after Roe v. Wade was passed, and again in 1976, three years after Roe v. Wade was passed. Now, what I'm not here to do is to give an exhaustive exhaustive history of abortion. But what should strike you is the fact that these very two well-known organizations, they're not fringe organizations in any way, shape or form, but these these two very well-known organizations had a stance towards abortion that seems so at odds with what we're used to from our Christian leaders and what we've come to expect from them. And again, the Southern Baptist Convention passed, they reaffirmed this resolution in 1976. So what was it that happened between 1976 and 1979-1980 that caused such a seismic shift in the way that evangelicals as a whole viewed abortion? And to answer that question, we actually have to go back a little bit to 1970 in a case that was decided in the Supreme Court, Green v. Connolly. And what this decision meant was that if there was an organization or, sorry, a school that discriminated, it was therefore not by definition a charity and was no no longer entitled to tax-exempt status. And one thing that you need to understand is that private Christian schools that were quite popular in, in certain parts of the country were established as a means of overcoming Brown versus the Boards of Education, which was decided in 1954, and another decision by the Supreme Court, which meant that, which which led to school integration. So, <laughs> I know I'm going back and forth with history, but bear with me. So, in 1954, Brown versus the Board of Education was decided, and that basically led to the integration of schools. In order to overcome that, some 
people decided to make private Christian schools, which were also given the nickname segregation academies, in which they could overcome Brown versus Board of Education and therefore discriminate. So then, in Green versus Connolly, that right was taken away from them. And this actually caused some concern about amongst some evangelical leaders. And one of the leaders it was concerning to was Jerry Falwell Sr., who did operate a segregation academy, which is known as Liberty University. He said that he founded the, in, this organization on religious grounds and that he was therefore entitled to, to his tax exemptions. Underneath all this, there was the fear that government was going to come in, tell them what to do, and get in the way of their religious freedoms. What's happening is that there is power, there is a threat of, of outside power coming in and dominating, whereas they wanted to exercise power in their own way. Around this time, there is a political activist called Paul Wyrick, who was looking for something that he could use to mobilise evangelicals to, uh, to unite around the Republican Party. So he was looking for this issue. He was trying to find something that he could use to make evangelicals into a voting bloc and more so gather them around the Republican Party. Now, he was, he was, he was a shrewd individual, which, which meant that he understood racism probably wasn't going to be something that would work to mobilize the, even, the greater evangelical population. It might be something that was that was playing on the fears of some well-known leaders like Jerry Falwell Sr., but they knew it just wasn't going to happen for the, you know, the everyday evangelical. But what happened in 1968, sorry, 1978, was that Wyrick realised abortion might be the thing that he could use. After the passing of Roe v. Wade, there had actually been a growing sense of unease among evangelicals about just how commonplace abortions were becoming. Yes, there was large indifference to it at the passing of Roe v. Wade, but people were surprised by how commonplace they were becoming. And then the, when abortion was something that was highlighted in the 1978 midterms, the, it, Paul Weirich realized that he, that he was in a moment where abortion could actually be used to mobilize evangelicals. And so what happened was, in 1979, Paul Weirich and Jerry, Jerry Falwell Sr., they formed the Moral Majority, Moral Majority, which was a political action group. And from that time on, they tried to rally evangelicals around the Republican Party, using abortion as the driving issue. And in that time frame, they turned evangelicals from Jimmy Carter, who was the then president, who was a Democratic Southern Baptist Sunday school teacher, and towards Ronald Reagan, a divorced Hollywood actor. You see, it wasn't about abortion in and of itself. It was about securing for themselves a political bloc that could be used towards the goals that they wanted themselves. And if you think that I sound like I'm just being really cynical, historian Randall Barman noted that in 1990... So this was 10 years after, which was 11 years after the Moral Majority was formed. In 1990, Paul Weirich at an event noted that, he said, what got the evangelicals going as a political movement was the attempt on the part of the IRS to rescind the tax-exempt status of Bob Jones University because of its racially discriminatory policies. 
Whereas on the surface, it was all about abortion. But the thing that was actually driving the issue, the thing that caused the political movement that brought abortion to the surface, had nothing to do with that. It was about tax-exempt status being rescinded from a racially discriminatory school. So, what is the point of this? Why am I saying all this? I'm saying this because I want to point out to my friends and listeners who support pro-life issues from a place of good faith that what got us to this point wasn't actually good faith. It wasn't sincerity. It was political move it was political maneuvering rooted in a quest for power. And I happen to be of the opinion that that as this issue was brought to the forefront by an act of opportunism, it remains at the forefront because of that very same opportunism. It's 2020. We are in a presidential election. And as was the case in 2016, I'm being told from various sides how important it is for people to vote a certain way in order that conservative judges might be appointed to the court in order that Roe v. Wade might be overturned. But once again, when you look into some of the details, that story itself doesn't hold water. Since 1973, for example, which was the year that Roe v. Wade was passed, the Republican Party has appointed 11 justices to the Supreme Court, whereas the Democrats have nominated just four. And with what looks like the impending appointment of Amy Coney Barrett, the Supreme Court, the Republicans, sorry, will have appointed Supreme Court justices at a ratio of three to one when compared to their Democratic opponents. If ensuring that Republicans can nominate justice is all we need, justices is all we need to overturn Roe v. Wade, then why hasn't it happened already? In the Trump era, for example, since 2016, before the midterms, with the appointment of Neil Gorsuch and then Brett Kavanaugh, there was a moment in time where the GOP had the White House, the Senate, the House of Representatives, and a conservative majority on the Supreme Court. Because you must remember that if Amy Coney Barrett gets appointed, it was only going to further extend the conservative majority on the Supreme Court. It's been at five to four ever since Brett Kavanaugh was appointed. Everything that they've needed to be in place was already in place, and yet Roe v. Wade still stands. Another area of argument comes from the idea that voting for Democrats will automatically lead to an increase in the abortion rate. It's rooted in the assumption, the false assumption, that Democrats just love the idea of killing babies. And I've, I've heard it said before, I just can't vote for the quote-unquote pro-choice party. But interestingly enough, according to the CDC, the Center for Disease, Disease Control, abortion rates, they reached a peak in 1980. And since then, regardless of which party has been in power, it's actually been dropping steadily. And even more interestingly is that the sharpest declines happened during democratic presidencies. In the Clinton era, for example, abortion rates fell from 23 abortions per thousand women to 16 per thousand women. During George, D George W. Bush's tenure as president, that number actually remained the same between 2001 and 2008 at 16. But then during the Obama administration, that number fell again from 16 
per thousand to twelve and a half per thousand. And when you look even deeper, you can see that abortion rates are actually at the lowest they've been since 1971, which was two years before Roe was signed into law. And the abortion rates in this country right now are actually lower than they were before Roe v. Wade became law. There is a huge concern that the, that the consequences of Roe v. Wade be undone and that that law be turned back. Statistically, however, Roe v. Wade has already been undone. But let's just assume that Roe v. Wade does get overturned. Will that end abortion? If Roe v. Wade was the thing that was need, if overturning Roe v. Wade was all that we needed, would it actually would it actually end abortion? And unfortunately, the answer to that is no. Roe v. Wade didn't create abortion, and overturning it isn't going to end abortion. If Roe v. Wade was overturned, then the legality of abortion would revert back to the states. As someone who lives in California, uh, a state that holds one-eighth of the U.S. population and a state that is deeply, deeply blue, I am under no pretense that the overturning of Roe v. Wade would suddenly mean that state legislators would, would go in that direction too and undo Roe v. Wade. And then you throw in other highly populous areas of the country. You throw in New York State, you throw in Illinois, to name but a few. And then you get a picture that's, that... The picture that becomes very clear all of a sudden is that actually undoing Roe v. Wade isn't going to undo abortion. But then, why don't we look at some of the states that would adopt strict anti-abortion policies, a deep red state? What if you live in Mississippi? What if you live in Georgia? What if you live in South Dakota, for example? Will the overturning of Roe v. Wade guarantee that pregnant women won't cross state lines in order to get an abortion? And can we actually guarantee that the overturning of Roe v. Wade, coupled with living in deep red states, won't, res- won't lead to people adopting at-home abortion procedures that, was, that were actually relatively common before, pro, before Roe? Sorry. Unfortunately, we can't. The issue of abortion is actually really wide-ranging. It's very complex and it's very nuanced. And my assertion is that those who tell you that a vote for a certain candidate or a vote for a certain party is all that's needed in the fight against abortion are either ignorant of history or are cynically using it against you in order that they might have greater opportunity to wield political power. Again, this isn't about me not being pro-life. I do consider myself pro-life. I consider my own pro-life ethic much broader than many of my most vociferously pro-life friends and acquaintances. But what I am saying is, if it's never occurred to you to honestly critique the practices of one political party because they say they're pro-life, if, for whatever reason, you give them a pass, no matter what their conduct is, no matter what their behaviour is, no matter how bad faith they are, because of this one issue... I would say that you're being lied to. I would say that you're being manipulated. I would say that they're holding up the great political piñata for you to swing at with all your might so that they can get what they want while holding the promise of what you want tantalizingly within reach. But the thing about this great political piñata is if history has anything to tell us, it's never going to break. It's never going to yield its candy. 
but they'll have you exactly where they want you, swinging at what they want you to swing at, paying attention to only this, whilst ignoring essentially everything else. And for me, that is something that should be avoided at all costs.